0: welcome everybody to this important session on a topic that is, of course, very timely and that touches on so many different areas of law. My name is Omid Fruzzi. I'm a staff attorney at Philadelphia Legal Assistance in our low-income taxpayer clinic. And for the better part of the last two years, I've been focused on this issue of worker misclassification and helping people challenge their misclassification for federal tax purposes. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And I'm joined here uh, by my colleagues, Nadia and Julia. Nadia, if you want to discuss what you'll be talking about today.
1: Hello, everyone. Nice to see um, some friends on here. Um, So hopefully I don't embarrass myself in front of you. Uh, This is Nadia Hefke. I'm an attorney at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. And I'm going to be talking about misclassification in the uh, wage and hour uh, context.
2: Julia? Hi, everyone. For those who don't know me, I'm Julia Simon Michelle. I'm the supervising attorney of the Unemployment Compensation Unit at Philadelphia Legal Assistance, uh, and I'll be focusing on the effects of misclassification uh, in unemployment.
0: So, one thing I want to mention is that we will be taking questions at the end. So, please put your questions in the chat and we'll be monitoring them. And then, once we're all done, we'll take everyone's questions after we've all presented. Uh, But first, today, I'm gonna hand it off to Nadia, who will be sharing her screen and kicking off this presentation.
1: Great. Um, So again, uh, I I guess before I get started with the presentation, I was wondering how many folks in our Zoom room do wage an hour, any wage theft or wage an hour work at all? You can put your thumbs up or clap in your reaction section. Um, I think a lot of folks do unemployment maybe And maybe not as many do wage an hour. Um, All right. I see a few thumbs up on both of our pages. So um, that's something that's good to know. Um, It will not change my presentation one iota. (laughs) Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, overall view of misclassification. Misclassification affects uh, workers in a lot of different ways. So we're just focusing on the three um, areas that we um, that we mentioned, which is wages, um, unemployment, and taxes. So I want to um, start with wages, and, um, but also tell you that, that it goes beyond wages, obviously. Um, okay, so let's talk um, a little bit about uh, misclassification and what it is overall. Um, Misclassification is hard to say exactly for those who've tried to quantify it, but it's um, estimated 1 in 10 workers um, and is greater and lesser in in certain industries. There's a study that found that one-third of construction workers in the South were misclassified. So we do see a lot of of misclassification coming up in the residential construction and other kind of construction. Um, It is part of um, the trends towards a fissured workplace um, in terms of subcontracting, temporary staffing, outsourcing, etc. The way a janitor at a um, office used to be employed by the business and is now employed by a different company, these are all part of a, a trend. Um, Uh, But overall, the practice of misclassifying workers undermines workers' rights, depresses wages, and disarms collective action, because if you're not seen as an an employee, then you lose out on many different workplace protections. Also has a huge impact on um, local, state, and federal um, tax collection, and therefore um, public goods that we all depend on. And, um, And it... Creates a problem in, within industries where certain um, employers are undercut, undercutting others. Um, if you want to read more about the trends, there's um, a David Weil who used to run the uh, Wage and Hour Division of the U.S. Department of Labor um, under Obama, wrote a lot about this um, and focused on this a lot at while he was in the in in the DOL. So. Um, who is an employee and who is an independent contractor. There, It's not always misclassification, so let's get that clear. Um, so um, if you are an employee, then, uh, I'm sorry, let me close this out. It's generally de- determined by common law, sometimes by statute. Um, if you're an employee, you have a boss, someone else sets your wages and working conditions, and you are helping to build someone else's business and not your own, um, also, if you're an employee, you can be fired, right? And that's a, that's a key part of, of that. Um, who is an independent, independent contractor? Someone who's in business, business for themselves, um, someone who makes investments um, in order to sustain and grow a business, and someone who negotiates and sets their own prices with clients. It's not, you're not being told um, you know, what the price is by somebody else. That would be a very boss-like thing to do. Um, so the impacts of um, calling workers independent contractors um, are, um, you know, the following under the, the employment laws. As an independent contractor, you get no no right to minimum wage, no right to overtime. Um, uh, employees get workers' compensation, and independent contractors don't. Employees get an unemployment, and <clears throat> independent contractors don't. All of the uh, discrimination laws, including harassment laws, apply to employees and not independent contractors. There's a small trend to remedy that right now. Um, the right to form a union and collectively bargain is also a right reserved to employee uh, workers or employees and not independent contractors. And employer provided retirement benefits are. Um, are usually not provided to independent contractors. So that's a sampling of the different employment um, impacts. Um, oh, then the cost to the worker um, is um, something is gonna talk more about, but you know, the huge cost to independent contractors is that they have to pay their entire um, self-employment rate at 15.3, whereas employees um, um, split FICA and FUTA um, 7.65 each. Um, so as well under independent contractors have to provide their own insurance and cover injuries on their own, whereas employers pay for workers comp, Um, and, um, employers usually can't deduct, um, other like employee expenses like uniforms, et cetera, whereas independent contractors are responsible for bringing anything they need to the job on their own. Um, just a quick overview we're not going to talk too much about how to fix this big problem um, broadly but there are um, there are efforts afoot by um, forces on the right um, oops sorry um, by forces on the right to um, carve out certain um, transportation uh, jobs for um, to to make sure that 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 those workers are not classified as employees and can be um, classified as independent contractors so there's a lot of back and forth and fighting over this issue because the cost the bottom line to the to the businesses are huge if if they can get away with calling someone an independent contractor as opposed to an employee, they save a lot and shift those costs on the workers right so um, this is where certain kinds of legislation are um, are um, have have been passed or are working on being passed, and luckily Pennsylvania is not one of them yet. But we can expect that that may be happening soon. These things are. This is an organized effort. Um, there's um, another type of um, uh, bills that that want to exempt certain kinds of like platform employers from um, from misclassification efforts to fight misclassification. Um, so. Um, who is getting misclassified? Um, lessons power really about who gets to to set the terms of, of a job. Um the uh, the lack of enforcement is another whole topic that we can get into and we can talk about who 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 is up for this fight in Pennsylvania because people are getting misclassified every day. And if you raise it in one form, it doesn't necessarily get fixed in other forms. But um, like I said, in construction, there's a lot of misclassification. So painters or drywallers really should only be independent contractors if they are the ones setting the terms of their um, pay, um, and are um, and the the way they perform their work, whereas a lot of times um, they're not. A lot of times they're just uh, being misclassified. They are they are someone else's employee. Um, in in the construction area, that this is the one area where we do have a law in Pennsylvania, where um, where there is actually. Um, some protection for construction workers where there is a presumption that you're an employee and not an independent contractor. Um, And so I would recommend that if you have a lot of Uh, construction worker clients to take a look at the Construction Misclassification Act. Um, So that is one area. And and why is that there? It's because there's some power in some of the unions that represent workers in those industries that pushed for this. Um, We should look at getting something broader than that to apply to all workers, uh, from my opinion. Um, Where we also see it, we see it in home health, we see it with nannies, I see it a lot in um, therapists, like providing mental health services, for instance, um, for different um, um, mental health, uh, I'm sorry, for different health practices. Um, We see it a lot in nail salons, we see it a lot in um, a variety of different, you know, um, industries, and in and in temp work we see it. Um, A lot of the misclassification also serves a purpose for employers who are trying to avoid doing I-9 Um, checks in terms of whether someone is legally authorized to work so this is another driver of misclassification Um, and sometimes you'll find that workers are willing participants in that if it's their only way to work Um, but there are costs to to that as well Um, there are many other areas where we see this but that's just a smattering of the kinds of cases you can see it in you've seen in pizza places frankly you can see it anywhere but those are some of the big um, big ticket areas where we see misclassification. So let's get to the labor laws. Um, and uh, I'm gonna try to be mindful of my time um, and not get too deep into any of this, but I, or, or, I would um, encourage you that if you come across any wage and hour issues and, you, uh, and there's a misclassification um, um, issue, Contact us at CLS and we'd be glad to try to talk it through with you. so for the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the federal law on minimum minimum wage and overtime, be aware that there's new regs that are currently pending, and if you care about this issue, you might want to um, check out the sample comments that the National Employment Law Project has put out. They are due next week, so we um, if your organization is able to sign on um, the uh, surprise surprise the new regs would loosen the test and make it easier for businesses to classify workers as independent contractors. The current test is is the economic realities test under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And so really what you look at is not what the employer calls someone, whether they're given a 1099, et cetera, but it really is looking at what is going on in this employment relationship. To what extent are the services this this worker is providing to the business, to what extent is that an integral part of the uh, of the employers business is the relationship between them permanent, or is this just like a little um, gig for a couple of weeks is this um, is the uh, alleged contractor um, investing in facilities and equipment and, and and basically in their own business or is everything provided by the um, by the employer by the alleged employer how much control does the employer have over the way that you do your work is it up to you to set your hours and um, what order you're going to do your work in and how much you get done in a day or are you being um, supervised and monitored all the time Um, what is the alleged contractor's opportunity for profit and loss so again if you finish the job quickly um, and you get paid the same amount, that means you've profited because you can move on to the next job. But if you're paid by the hour, then you don't really have an opportunity for profit and loss um, if you finish quickly. In fact, that's kind of a loss, right? So the more the contractor is able to benefit from doing a job quickly and efficiently versus um, versus in some other way, um, then, then that person would be an independent contractor. The amount of initiative, judgment, or foresight um, in um, in in a competition with others, you know, I don't think this is a, one of the main factors. Um, and the degree of independent business organization and operation again, does the ind- alleged independent contractor have a business card? Have um, advertise? Um, you know, um, have a bunch of clients that they work for. Um, so uh, all of these are things that the Fair Labor Standards Act takes into account. Um, but that could change if the new rule, new regs come into effect. Um, okay, the Pennsylvania Wage Payment and Collection Law. Those of you who do wage law in Pennsylvania know that we have the Pennsylvania minimum wage law, which uh, covers minimum wage and overtime, but non-payment of wages is usually um, uh, is usually something that you bring a, a claim under the Pennsylvania Wage Payment and Collection Law. The benefit of doing that also is that under the wage payment and collection law you get Promised wages, not just the minimum wage. So, if you are promised twelve dollars an hour, um, then you can get um, the full twelve and not just the minimum wage of seven twenty-five an hour. Um, you can also bring claims for other benefits. So, if you're misclassified um, and therefore not getting um, health care, then you can, uh, or retirement benefits, then you might be able to bring that under a WPCL claim. So, we bring claims together with the FLSA where there is overtime um, and other things. Um, under the under, under Pennsylvania law, control is the key factor of the of the list of factors I listed earlier for the FLSA. Control is the key, and that is is the um, is the person subject to the alleged employer's control or right to control with respect to his physical conduct and the performance of the services for which he was engaged. Um, So an employer not only controls the results of the work, but also has the right to direct the manner in which the work is accomplished. Whereas for an independent contractor, the person engaged in the work has the exclusive control of the manner of performing it. So think again, back to the drywall example. And if you as the drywaller um, negotiated um, how much you get paid by the job, and not by the day or by the hour. Um, If you um, were responsible for getting all the supplies together, figuring out what order you're gonna do the drywalling in the house, how many people you're gonna hire under you, then you're probably an infinite contractor. However, if you are being paid by the hour or the day, um, and you are given supplies and told when to show up, told um, how to do the job, where to do the job, someone is supervising your work, telling you you're doing this right, you're doing that wrong, then you're probably not an independent contractor um, and you're probably an employee. Um, So one of the big cases in Pennsylvania is Dallas versus Albert Einstein, um, and and the slides are all available through plan if you want to take a look at any of the things that we're referring to today. Okay, I think I only have a few minutes left because we wanna save time at the end. So again, this is a very cursory overview of wage and hour um, implications, but um, contact us if you want more assistance. You may have heard about um, something major going on in California. There was a big case called Dynamex. So if you're interested in this issue, take a look at um, the Dynamex case. Um, uh, Basically, the California Superior Court um, made uh, some sweeping findings there after years of litigation, is my understanding, um, that there's a, the, they identified all the harms that are caused by misclassification of workers, um, looking not just at the workers, but also harms to law abiding businesses that are not misclassifying and to the state in terms of revenue, as we discussed. Um, and because all of those multi factor tests that we discussed control um, who has control. It gives employers wiggle room, especially if they say, oh, my accountant said I could do this, right? Um, uh, it gives them some wiggle room under the law if they're relying on the, you know, the opinion of um, a, a, a professional, for instance. Uh, under the FLSA, there is case law about that. Um, so because all these tests give um, employers cover, and it get, makes it a little more difficult to say if someone's misclassified or not, California decided to, you um, to create a presumption of employment, um, and that employer has to prove that this person is truly an independent contractor. And so, um, again, that is the way things are headed um, in a lot of different states, because of the fact that misclassification is hard to find. Um, you know, empo- um, Employees or you know, um, alleged employees have to be brave enough to come forward um, and risk that they're gonna get terminated, and not have um, unemployment comp, for instance, uh, if they are terminated after complaining or filing, a, filing some sort of a complaint with a governmental authority. So creating a more bright line test is, um, is more protective of workers and that's something that, um, that, or at least a presumption, is something that is a little bit um, more manageable for, for all parties rather than having to fight employers um, every step of the way if they're uh, to see whether they are misclassifying or not, so that's the um, a big a big effort that um, Uber and Lyft are fighting hard right now in California through um, through a statewide referendum, and I believe um, that's just about it. Um, a few other s- suggestions people have are are um, creating um, wage boards. Um, for collective bargaining. That's something that's happening in a variety of ways. I'm not super familiar with that, but that's something that we're exploring in Philadelphia as a way to get around some of these um, collective bargaining problems that um, independent contractors have. Statutory employment right above it is what I just mentioned, is that where you make it clear by statute that that certain workers are employees. And also, um, States have a lot of power in procurement to, um, to um, only give contracts to employers that are not misclassifying or are treating workers well. You could do, you know, Philadelphia has that for wages, but you could do that for misclassification. You could do that for recognition of uh, labor rights as well. And then making misclassification a violation so that there are extra penalties on employers that are, that are misclassifying. Um, I believe that's it for me. Oh, look at that, there we go. I'm gonna turn it over to my co-presenters. Um, I <laughs> believe Julia is next.
3: If I could just interrupt, this is Kelly. Um, I need to launch the first of the CLE poll boxes. You'll have a minute and a half to respond. And Omid or Julia, please um, continue, feel free.
2: I can go ahead and go next. Um, Give me a second while people are doing this to share my screen as well. Okay, so we're going to quickly go through the impact of misclassification on unemployment benefits in this. Uh, part of the session. And there's a lot of overlap with what Nadia has already talked about in terms of uh, the tests and various approaches uh, that are used. So I think as many people are now more familiar with during the pandemic, um, the first step of qualifying for unemployment compensation uh, at the state level is that a worker must be found financially eligible for benefits, which is based on a look back period um, of that worker's wages. Um, to get an idea of how much they earned and when they earned. Now, where misclassification clearly comes in is that the financial determination only includes W-2 wages as they are reported by employers. So employers have the responsibility of filing quarterly reports of uh, wages for their workers. Um, and that is where the information is pulled. And so for those of you working on unemployment issues during the pandemic, you've noticed that there are many times that those wages are incorrect or there's wages that are missing. Um, and one of the main reasons they're often missing um, is that an employer has classified internally that worker as an independent contractor and not as a W-2 worker um, and is therefore not paying taxes on Um, their wages and not reporting them to unemployment. So when somebody's um, wages are missing and they believe that they were misclassified, um, the only way to get those wages included um, in the uh, notice of financial determination is to appeal um, and go to uh, an unemployment compensation referee hearing. Now, there is a step before that where a wage investigation can be done and I think like once in the blue moon the department on its own uh may find uh that the wages should have been included um but more often than not um it'll go to an unemployment compensation referee and the referee is asking really one question which is whether uh the work was done in employment under that employment compensation law so the unemployment compensation law defines uh employment and uh, in under the law, which is remedial in nature, there is a presumption that uh, that work done for wages is employment unless the employer can prove or the department can prove, depending on um, the posture, uh, that that worker is free from control and direction and that they are customarily engaged in independent business, right? so. Um, they have to prove both prongs before it takes someone out um, of the presumption that they are working in employment. So it's a little odd in that initially the wages are not included because the presumption is that whatever the employer reports is correct. Um, But once you raise it to the level of an appeal, again, the presumption is actually on the side of the worker. Um, So when a worker is uh, contesting that their wages were not included uh, in the financial notice of determination, uh, it is actually the employer's burden at, or as they'll often refer to it, the putative employer's burden at that hearing to prove they were uh, not employed, right? To prove those two prongs, that burden's on the employer. Now in practice, if uh, especially if an employer is not present at the hearing, Um, referees will often uh, engage the claimant, the worker, um, in a series of questions pretty much kind of going through the different factors included um, in each issue, free from control direction, independently engaged uh, in a business to try to develop the record in order to make a ruling um, on whether or not uh, that person's wages can be considered earned in employment and therefore count towards uh, their unemployment benefit rate. So the first prong, free from control and direction, um, it considers the totality of the circumstances. Um, It's pretty similar to a lot of the other control tests that are out there, Um, you know, like the wage and hour test that India mentioned and same with the FLISA test, but each control test kind of has its own Um, factors that are identified usually through um, precedent and so there's a series of different precedents um, in Pennsylvania that enumerate the different factors that can be considered um, but ultimately it's a totality of the circumstances analysis. The key here and again this is similar to what you heard before is that it's not actually about whether the employer did exercise control um, but also whether they had the right authority to exercise control. So even if they choose not to use it, that doesn't mean that that automatically places someone in the role of an independent contractor um, as opposed to an employee. It's the same test in unemployment across the board, um, does not depend on industry. Um, One thing to note um, is that uh, if you are dealing with someone uh, in multiple different areas, uh, you know, you have a client who is misclassified and you're dealing with in the wage and hour context, you're dealing with it in the unemployment context, maybe you're also filing um, uh, a tax case, uh, as Amede will talk about, unemployment decisions on issues, uh, on this issue are, are not uh, controlling and that they can't be used for collateral estoppel purposes. Um, that has been held by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court under the idea that an employer may not fully contest this to the same extent they would if it was in the wage and hour context and there was kind of money on the line uh, for an employer in a different way. Um, And so while these can be super helpful, they are not um, controlling another context, although that doesn't mean that they are not admissible um, and could not be helpful in some ways, um, but it doesn't mean that it is a settled issue outside of the unemployment context. Um, For customarily engaged and independently established business, um, and let me just point out, um, Nadia mentioned the ABC test briefly. In essence, the test for, uh, for unemployment compensation in Pennsylvania is the AC test. We just don't have the B prong. Um, we actually had the B prong, um, but it was taken out uh, in the late 1940s. So I'm clear why, um, but it is now the AC test in essence. Under the C prong, uh, there are really two analyses. One, the focus is on whether the business or occupation was independently established. Um, This is really the idea of can they operate on their own or are they really reliant on uh, an entity like an employer? And second, is the claimant customarily engaged in the work? Um, And actually, recently, the question of what it means to be customarily engaged in the work came before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, because there had been this developing idea um, at the Commonwealth Court level that somebody could be customarily engaged as long as they could expand their work, or they could work more consistently, or they could have worked for other um, entities, right? This idea uh, that they have kind of sole control over their work, and if they're choosing not to work more then that doesn't necessarily mean that they're an employee. Um, And the court really pushed back hard on that um, and really said that it's not a hypothetical, it's not about what they could do, it really is only about the work they actually did. So if somebody was, um, and it's one of the the claimants in that case, which was a case assessing taxes, um, cleaned uh, the floors at the nail studio, at the nail salon, just because they could have cleaned floors at other nail salons doesn't mean they were customarily engaged. They weren't actually doing that. That was the only place that they were performing those activities for. Uh, and so I think that's a really important narrowing of that uh, test for workers and actually lines up with how customarily engaged has been interpreted uh, in many of the other states that share this language, both in the wage and hour context and in the unemployment insurance context. So the second place where we see um, issues of misclassification come up are when people have already qualified for unemployment um, and then begin picking up other types of work and reporting that income while they are on unemployment. Um, If some sort of income is reported that makes uh, the unemployment authority think that somebody is engaged in self-employment, which is a term of art in the law. Um, then they will often disqualify them from any benefits under this idea that once they've engaged in self-employment, they're not truly unemployed. Um, you know, they are in control of their of their level of employment. Uh, and so, uh, again, this usually happens when somebody reports earnings at Section four hundred two H of the law. Um, and you know, we see this happen all the time. We are constantly appealing and trying to contest. Those classifications. Um, I have seen people investigated for things as crazy as somebody, uh, as a client who was a cancer survivor and as part of uh, her um, part of her rehabilitation and her um, medical support was asked to fill out a survey and got paid twenty dollars to fill out the survey and reported it to unemployment and then they investigated her for self-employment. So their bar is really low, um, but. Um, this I, I believe this is changing we'll um, talk in one moment about a case that that uh, shows that but there I think has also been some interest from leadership at the department to kind of reevaluate how they uh, look at these cases um, at the ground level so, the big case that just came out was our case Loman versus Unemployment Compensation Board of Review. It came out the end of July. Um, it's a long-running case that started back in 2015 about whether or not an X driver um, could be disqualified from unemployment benefits under that section, under the self-employment section 402H. Um, and first and foremost, what the court held in that case was that Um, when you're evaluating the relationship of uh, a worker and an employer under the self-employment prong, you use the same exact test as you use in um, the initial uh, qualification. So so saying that that two-prong test, that AC test, is the test that you use in the self-employment context. So in essence, finding that it's exactly the same, um, although one is called self-employment and one is called employment. Um, And so what they found in Loman um, was that looking at this Uber X driver, they concentrated primarily on the role of Uber as the putative employer and Uber's conduct and found that Uber controlled and directed the performance of the driver services um, as a driver for hire. And importantly, for people who are um, contesting uh, the employment status of gig workers in both the unemployment context and other contexts, Um, They really focused on that there was an application process, um, that they couldn't substitute to provide services, and that really there was this whole idea of like virtual monitoring, review and supervision of his performance, right? A lot of times gig companies talk about how, oh, we don't actually supervise, you know, or train, we provide guidance. And the court really shoved that to the side and rejected that and said, really what is happening here is... um, is review and supervision, and that's especially the case because they're all tracked by GPS. Um, They looked at the pay structure, and interestingly enough, um, they also focused on uh, the tools and equipment. So usually tools and equipment go against uh, workers in the gig context when we're uh, talking about misclassification, Um, but finally we got the court to recognize that actually the most important tool for all of these workers is the app that they cannot perform these jobs. They cannot perform this work without the app. Um, and this I believe is the first case that really holds that anywhere in the country and focuses on the fact that the app is really the be all end all um, of this work. And then importantly, the court went a step further. As lawyers, you know that um, courts don't often rule on things they don't have to. <laughs> um, so they could have just ruled on one of these prongs and stopped there, but they chose to rule on both. Um, and in the second, Prong found that the that um, Lubrak was also not engaged in an independently established business, and really focused on the the fact that under Pennsylvania law, uh, they cannot legally provide driving services um, on their own. Um, And that importantly, they can't create a customer base. They can't contact customers outside of Uber. They cannot set their own rates, um, which really differentiated this case from a previous case involving limousine drivers where they found that those drivers were customarily engaged in independent businesses. So just a few more important takeaways that I think impact um, contesting misclassification of gig workers in general, because I think this case is widely applicable. Again, it used the AC test. Uh, very clearly the same test used for um, qualifying for benefits and in other areas of misclassification. There was a a very heavy focus on the written agreement with drivers. And just to note, the written agreement is pretty consistent um, over the years and across states. Um, They change it here and there. Um, But the things that we're focused on in this case are the core values of their business um, and their product. So that has not changed. Um, And a lot of the facts similarly exist with other platform uh, businesses and companies. Um, Again, I I mentioned earlier, uh, the fundamental tool being the app, um, and that recognizing that the virtual world in which Uber operates control looks different. Um, I had mentioned during the oral argument we had in our briefs, it's different than someone in middle management looking over your shoulder in the office. Um, But in reality, uh, the effect is the same in terms of the control. Um, And they also uh, came back to this argument that Uber makes consistently, uh, which is that, you know, well, my client could have gone out and got a license. (laughs) He could have incorporated, he could have expanded his own business. And just because he's a bad independent business person doesn't mean he's an employee. And again, the court really rejected that argument. Um, That's not what the focus is on. Um, And then just for this conversation, one of the pieces I really want to point out is that oftentimes Uh, courts focus on the flexibility that these workers have, meaning the flexibility to choose the hours that they work. And they say, well, that really can't be an employee. Um, And the court, I think for the first time in any court across the country, really pointed out that just because they don't have regularly scheduled hours um, does not mean that they are automatically an independent contractor um, and that that flexibility itself um, does does not control um, and that is usually an argument that these companies like to make, the workers will often respond oh, yeah. that yes, they have the flexibility to work 80 hours a week. Julie, uh, sorry
1: to interrupt. Well, I wanted to give you your one minute warning.
2: Yep, I am actually done. That was my last point. So we are good and we're gonna move over to Amid.
0: All right, thank you everyone. Thank you, Julia and Nadia. Um, hope everyone can see my screen. Uh, So I'm going to talk about tax consequences of misclassification. And as was mentioned briefly before, so of course, when you are misclassified as an independent contractor, what ends up happening is you get paid on a 1099 or in cash uh, instead of being paid as a W-2, even though you really are an employee. And one thing that Nadia said that I think is so important is that it is not what your employer calls you, because often we have clients who come in who have signed things that are called independent contractor agreements, and yet the facts show that really they had significant control over them in their jobs. They worked for a supervisor who controlled the methods and means by which they performed their work. So they really were an employee. And I should note that moving forward, the form that these workers, these misclassified workers would get if they were misclassified would be a 1099 NEC. Uh, that stands for non-employee compensation, but traditionally in the last several years, it's been a 1099 MISC, and you would see the income wrongly reported as non-employee compensation with no taxes being withheld, whereas, of course, they should have received the W-2 with withholding. And the effect of that is, of course, that then the worker is on the hook for both the employee and employer side of Social Security and Medicare taxes. Now, we've talked a lot about different definitions and standards that are used, and the IRS uses its own definitions and standards, and they more broadly focus on the common law definition, the common law standard of employment, focused on whether or not the employer has that right to control over the worker. There are some specific classes of employees that the Internal Revenue Code delineates, like salespersons and agent drivers, uh, but... They look at 20 factors that were established in Revenue Ruling 8741, and not any single factor is dispositive, but the basic question is, what was the degree of control over the worker? And those factors I should mention include things like whether the worker had a set schedule, whether they had a set rate of pay, if they were assigned certain tasks and had to comply with instructions about how and where to do their work. So when a practitioner sits down with a client to try and figure out if they were misclassified for tax purposes, I think it's important that they go through these 20 factors and make an evaluation based upon them as to whether or not the person was really misclassified, if they in fact were an employee. I'll touch just briefly on this issue, which is that, of course, employers are required to withhold Social Security and Medicare taxes and income taxes on their workers' pay. And in terms of the employee's share of taxes, if there is a finding that the employer has wrongfully intentionally misclassified somebody and that they disregard their withholding obligations, it's possible that then the employer can even be on the hook for the employee's share of income tax and the employee's share of Social Security and Medicare taxes, including with penalties tacked onto that as well. Uh, but Ultimately, employees are responsible for their own taxes and their own tax obligations. And that is something that still doesn't change. And that can be frustrating at times because even if you were to successfully challenge your 1099 status and you still owe even just your employees' share of taxes, that can still be a lot, especially if you're paying it after the fact. Can you imagine if all of us on W-2s had to pay just our share of tax even after the fact That's a significant amount of income, of course, and can be uh, onerous, especially for our low-income clients. And in terms of the federal tax impact principally of misclassification, misclassified workers end up being on the hook for the self-employment tax, 15.3% of your income because it's the 7.65% employee share and 7.65% employer share of Social Security and Medicare taxes. Now, it's true that if you're 1099, you can claim expenses, which is no longer the case for employees after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But the fact of the matter is is that you're only going to get Social Security credit for your net income. So if you were to claim expenses, it's going to bring down uh, your income for purposes of what's going to count towards your Social Security benefits. So it may not always be in your interest, in fact, to claim expenses. Uh, And so if you were misclassified, it is important to challenge it so that you can get on the books for Social Security fully and so that you only pay your correct share of employees' taxes. Um, And in terms of how you can make sure that you do that, you have to file what's called a Form SS-8 before the IRS. So the Form SS-8 is a four-page packet that you file before the IRS SS-8 unit to challenge your misclassification as an independent contractor. And the questions relate to how much financial control there was over you in your job, how much behavioral control there was, what the relationship was between the parties. It basically boils down to those 20 factors that I referenced earlier. And so this is a way that you can attest before the IRS that you were in fact an employee and you were misclassified. And you were you would send this form to the SS8 unit in Holtzville, New York with any accompanying documentation. You gotta make sure it's complete, even if there's uh, situations where it's N-A, you got to write N-A in there because otherwise the IRS might reject it. Uh, and what will happen is when you file this state, this gives you the right to list your 1099 income as employee income, as wages, so that on your tax return, you only pay your employee's share of tax. What's really important to note is that this is not a anonymous form, so the employer will find out that you challenged your misclassification, and they'll actually be sent a blank SS-8 in which they will have to respond with their version of the facts, and then pursuant to that investigation, the SS-8 unit will issue a determination as to whether the worker is an employee or independent contractor, a determination that they're going to share then with both sides. I should note that last year, the President signed into law the Taxpayer First Act, which provides a new whistleblower section that provides anti-retaliation protections, actually, for situations in which you file an administrative action and you allege that somebody didn't pay the share of tax that they should have paid, you can, in fact, uh, protect yourself against retaliation from them should that come to be. So if somebody retaliates against you for filing an SS-8, you're potentially protected by this law. Uh, I don't know that we've seen many... uh, claims brought under it yet because it's only been in effect for a year, but it's something to look out for and something, I think, to advise clients if they're worried about that retaliation. And in terms of what filing the SSA actually means for your taxes, once you file the SSA, that gives you the right to list this 1099 income as wages. And the way you do that is by attaching a Form 8919 to your tax return. The Form 8919 is really important because that's where you account for just your employee share of tax. So let's say you're uh, Dwight True working for Michael Scott in Dunder Mifflin and Michael Scott gave you a 1099, you misclassified you uh, even though you were uh, assistant to the regional manager and you really were an employee and he gave you a $10,000 1099 and then you realize that you were misclassified and you filed the SSA. So on the 8919, you can make sure that on that $10,000 that you're only paying 7.65%, $765 that is, instead of $1,530, which would be the self-employment tax. So you save yourself a significant amount of money by challenging your misclassification as an independent contractor. Now, there are situations where we've seen people who get W-2 and 1099 in the same year for the same job with no real distinction in the kind of work that is being done. In those cases, you don't need to do an SS8. You just do the 1040 tax return with an 8919 and you say, hey, I was really an employee for this 1099 income. And so that 1099 income, you account for just the employee share of tax on that, on the 8919 and file it with your return. The good thing is too, is that you can always seek refunds generally within three years of when a tax return should have been filed or two years from when a payment was made. But to make it really uh, simple here, uh, right now, the earliest year generally for which you can get a refund is 2017. Because the 17 return, that would have been due in April of 18. So you have until April of 2021 to file an amended return for 2017 to get back refund of the employer share of Social Security and Medicare tax that you shouldn't have paid Uh, because in fact you were misclassified first you do the ss8 then you do the amended return after that pursuant to filing the ss8 you can also always go back and reduce balances for previous years as well uh is especially if you're paying them off through an installment agreement we've seen that help a lot of our clients where they do ss8 to challenge their misclassification for many years ago even they're still paying off and so then when they do the ss8 and they file amended returns they're paying less off uh, ultimately and saving themselves money you can find yourself in tax court challenging your misclassification. If in fact you, as often happens, underreported or your preparer didn't report your 1099 income, you would get what's called a notice of deficiency that would you have the right to respond to to petition in tax court. It may be that in these situations, by the way, you still will have to file an SSA, but there are many tax court cases involving misclassification, and this is usually how they get there, which is that either someone didn't report the income or they owe taxes on the income and they weren't able to pay it off. So they get a bunch of notices for collection and then they find themselves getting what's called a collection due process notice that they can challenge and say, actually, I should pay uh, less in tax than this because I was misclassified. Employers also, by the way, can do SSAs to figure out how they should classify their workers. And so workers are subject to those cases in, in the sense that they'll be affected by them. Uh, even though sometimes they're not actual parties to them. uh, But those cases also could find themselves in tax court uh, if uh, the employer is being audited and the IRS has made a determination pursuant to that audit and then the employer appeals that. Uh, So there's all kinds of ways in which misclassification plays itself out through uh, the tax process and procedure. There's an interesting statute too, I should note here, this federal law, 26 U.S.C. 7434, that says that you can get damages of up to $5,000 if your employer fraudulently filed an information return, like a 1099 or W-2. Now, this clearly applies to cases where, let's say, your employer uh, gives you a 1099 for $50,000, but you really made $20,000, and they did this with intentionality. Clearly, that is a violation of this law. It's not as clear whether or not it applies to just pure misclassification. Like if let's say you're Dwight Schrute and you were misclassified, but there's no dispute that you actually made 10,000. The only dispute is you got the wrong form. No circuit court has ruled on this issue. The courts are, are generally split on this. Uh, the case law has unfortunately been mostly negative after the Eastern District of Virginia had this case called Liverett in 2016 where they dove into the legislative history and said, we don't think it applies to misclassification. But it's still something that's subject to a lot of debate. And I I recommend checking out articles on it on procedurally taxing, a blog about taxes where they have a lot of good research on this. There are ways that you can also anonymously dispute your misclassification, like filing a whistleblower form. But neither of these methods here actually directly impacts your tax liability. The only way you can really do that is by filing the SSA, that gives you a direct means to challenge your misclassification. And if the SSA unit determines that you were misclassified, then the employer is on the hook, in fact, for their share of taxes, their employment taxes, that they did not pay. They can still seek some kind of safe harbor relief and try and comply with the IRS through voluntary classification programs, but the SSA determination is a key thing to have because that still will make sure that you only pay your share of tax as a worker. Now here in Pennsylvania specifically, there's no real difference because on the PA tax return, everybody's taxed on 3.07% for their compensation. And one key thing is that of course, unfortunately, if you were given a 1099, then you have to pay it all yourself, whereas when you get a W-2, it's withheld from your paycheck. But you can always challenge your misclassification through the Department of Labor and Industry. And you can, in fact, if you're a construction worker, challenge your misclassification pursuant to Act 72, the Construction Workplace Misclassification Act that was referenced earlier. You can even do that online. But if you're not a construction worker and you're misclassified, you can always report your misclassification through the Office of Unemployment Compensation Tax Services. And I've spoken with folks uh, who work there and they have compiled great reports every year on the misclassification investigations that they do and the fines that they've been able to collect throughout the state from employers who unfortunately intentionally wrongfully uh, misclassified their workers. But we're always here in our low-income taxpayer clinic as a resource for low-income Philadelphians who were misclassified by their employers. And we want to make sure that we protect a key pillar of the taxpayer bill of rights that you only should have to pay the correct share of tax. So now i think we have a few minutes for questions i'll stop sharing
3: just sorry this is kelly i'm launching the second of the cle um pull boxes please respond you'll have a minute and a half to do so and please feel free to continue
0: all right so i guess uh we will take questions now in the chat um, if anybody has them please make sure to post in there <clears throat> Thank you, everyone, for joining us today as well. It seems like we have a pretty significant audience. uh, So we're happy about that.
3: So if you have any questions or comments for our presenters, um, please put them in the chat box now. And I think there's something.
0: Becky Stavish, my colleague at Midpen Legal Services in York, makes a great point that if you have a client who's not in Philadelphia, uh, then of course they can go to another low-income taxpayer clinic like hers. If you're in the York-Lancaster area, there's Villanova Federal Tax Clinic run by the wonderful Christine Spidell, uh, who uh, is an expert, and uh, they can help people in the color counties. like we have another question. I think that's
1: an unemployment question. For Julia, when the employer has the burden of establishing wages on appeal, is there a benefit to not bringing claimant into hearing if employer fails to show?
2: I don't think so. Even though technically the employer has the burden, um, if there's if there is evidence in the case by the department from a wage investigation or anything else, um, especially anything between. Uh, employer and claimant that corroborates each other, that could be used as evidence, and generally speaking, if you are um, contesting this, your client's testimony is going to be pretty good, right? Like if you believe that they were misclassified, especially if there's not an employer there to contradict them. So I've always brought uh, the claimant into those hearings.
1: Any other questions? I believe I hit a button to allow folks to unmute themselves in case you want to ask a question orally.
3: Actually, I had to do it and I just did. Oh,
1: (laughs) Oh. thank you, Kelly. (laughs) Sure. We're all friends here.
0: I think uh, Nadia made a, a great point that this is such a, Uh, timely salient issue because you've got Prop 22 in California up on election day that would potentially repeal uh, California's new protections for workers and you've got the DOLs uh, pending regs. So uh, this is definitely something to expect to see in the news uh, continuously a lot over the next several weeks, months, years really, especially with the gig economy on the rise. And I also
1: wanted to say, oh, oh, go ahead, Nindia. Oh, I was going to say that um, there, if you're doing wage and hour law, there's um, overlap between um, this misclassification issue as well as joint uh, joint employment. So um, they're related but not exactly the same in terms of how you can make multiple employers liable for non-payment of wages. And the the laws are pretty flexible on that. So just I would recommend that you look into that if you have a situation where someone subcontracted um, in order to avoid payment and avoid other liability. Go ahead,
2: Yeah, um, so for those of you who are representing gig workers right now who are currently covered by the extension of unemployment benefits to the pandemic unemployment assistance system, uh, that ends uh, at the end of December, and right now it's not looking good um, for any extensions of that program. Um, I will be reporting back and sending out information uh, later in the year as we try to work with the department on uh, leveraging Lohman uh, to. Change the initial um, evaluation of uh, worker status uh, for uh, gig workers, primarily drivers, uh, prior to the end of the year, uh, in the hope that we might be able to uh, move those gig workers, again, primarily drivers, since that's where the strongest law is right now, um, over to the unemployment system come January.
3: Okay, if nothing else and no other questions, I would like to thank our presenters for today uh, for giving of your time and all the wonderful information. Thank you to attendees um, for being here and we hope to see you for another session again soon. Everybody take care, have a good rest of the day.
1: You too, thanks Kelly. Thanks.